something Amy and I have enjoyed uh, when we were watching movies or, or TV with our kids, especially when they were little, but even as they grew up, we continued this. It tapered some, but something we enjoyed doing when we were doing that was, was actually pausing whatever we were watching and discussing whatever went on, okay? Whether that was a character expressing an a ungodly attitude or, you know, sinning or whatever, the, whatever it might have been. There was countless examples over the years. Um, but it was a really great time to engage with them in the middle of whatever they were taking in, helping them to learn to process that objectively and not just absorb it, you know. Um, so that, that kind of format of, of going through that, and, and honestly, the kids kind of rolled with it. You know, if you start early enough, it's normal. And so I'd encourage anybody that hasn't, to go ahead and start whatever age your kids are at. It's just a great way to interact and process things together. But especially if they're young, they won't know the difference. So anyway, I, I don't bring that up as like, this sermon is not about uh, parenting tips with media. It's because today's message is going to kind of be like that, okay? Um, I'm going to walk us through the passage. I'm going to walk us through the story of it and summarize things and illuminate things and stuff like that a little bit here and there. And after that, we'll look back through the whole story uh, to, to observe some applications and implications that I believe the Lord wants us to consider. And honestly, for the longest time, I was unclear how to give this passage a main idea, like where exactly it was, because it's just kind of a story, you know. But the Lord led me to it, and it's a little long because it encompasses a lot. But it is, we can trust God is present, aware, and active, even when things are hard, confusing, even devastating. And his goodness is not determined by whether or not he does things in, a way, in ways that we want or understand. I know that's long, but I'm going to say it again. We can trust God is present, aware, and active, even when things are hard, confusing, and devastating. And his goodness is not determined by whether or not he does things in ways that we want or understand. So I would now ask you, we've, we've prayed, we've read scripture, we're going to do more of that right here. Uh, Join me in asking God for his help in the delivery of his word and your reception of his word and our application of his word. Pray with me, please. Father, I thank you that your goodness is just who you are and that it is not dependent on our circumstances. Lord, I thank you that our faith, our trust in you doesn't have to be either. But Lord, you know how much of a struggle that is. And Lord, this, this passage is going to go a lot of places. I pray that you would please help us to hear from you, not me. Uh, and, and really, really, you know, imbibe your word and go from here led by what you've said and what you're doing in us by your spirit. Please move in power in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, like I said, I've termed it a story. So we're going to go ahead and look at it in a few scenes. Let's go ahead and turn to Acts 12 for scene one. Uh, and if, you, if, you're, if you're unfamiliar with scripture, Acts is uh, just a little ways into the New Testament after the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you've got Romans or anything else, you need to go back. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and we're in chapter 12, which is marked with a big 12. All right, so scene one, the setup, very creatively titled, right, uh, is verses one through five. So just follow along here as I read that to you again. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivered him, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. So guard him, to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I should have Scott just come up and read for me every time because he <laughs> did that way better. You'd think I hadn't read it like 10, 12 times already. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> so it might be helpful for it to start by pointing out this kind of vague timestamp that Luke starts with here in this, in this part of the story. Ancient historian, and what it is is about that time, right? And it's pretty consistently that way, treated that way in, in most translations. Uh, ancient historians, uh, which would include Luke, 
frequently grouped their, their content together uh, per species or of a kind, like like with like kind of thing. They, they kept on one thing until it was finished. They didn't bounce around to keep it all chronologically, strictly ordered. Like we tend to be more accustomed to in a way. Um, and this is actually, I believe, also present in some of the gospel accounts. So what Luke is likely doing with this intro phrase is indicating the following content was going on during some of what we've already heard. Okay? Uh, and in more modern comic book cinematic terminology, this would be something like, meanwhile, in Jerusalem, you know, that kind of idea, all right? Uh, and this also tends to make sense when you think of the history of everything because the, the, the famine that was, we just read about in the previous chapter that was prophesied to happen actually happened in AD 46, whereas Herod Agrippa, who dies at the end of this chapter, spoilers, sorry, uh, died in AD 44, okay? So Agrippa dies first, then the famine hits. So this is evidence of that's what's going on here is he's organizing things per species. Um, and this tends to make the most sense, uh, I'm sorry, in fact, it's probably best to understand these events to have happened between Acts eleven twenty six and 27, okay? So in between the growth of the church in, in uh, Antioch and Syria and Barnabas going to investigate and finding Paul, recruiting him to help there. And when the prophet, prophets come from Jerusalem and prophesy about the, the famine and everything. So right in there is when today's story takes place. Um, it's also probably helpful to understand a little bit more about Herod Agrippa. He's actually Herod, Herod Agrippa the first. We're going to hear about a different Agrippa later. Uh, Herod Agrippa the first is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the Tetrarch during, uh, when Jesus was born. Right? And he's nephew to Herod Antipas, who ruled over Galilee when Jesus was crucified and is also the guy that killed John the Baptist. Okay? So Herod Agrippa has a fairly well-documented and honestly sordid and sad history, sad in like a pathetic rich boy kind of uh, sad uh, history. And um, at this point, which turns out to be pretty late in his life, uh, he is the Tetrarch which, if you don't know what that is, they, I mean, the, the passage calls him a king, this translation does, but a tetrarch, this, this kingship, was an appointment by Rome. He was, he was Rome's guy over a certain area. He was subservient to many. Um, anyway, uh, he was tetrarch over all of Judea, all right, which is uh, the first time they had been like that since Herod the Great. He had actually absorbed all of Herod the Great's territory. He had, he had that kind of territory now. Um, and knowing the people's disdain for his family, because they were Roman puppets, right? Agrippa was eager to curry favor with the people. And uh, he would regularly play the part of a devout Jew uh, when he was out in public with them, when he was in country and everything. Wasn't the case when he was visiting Rome. Then he was the uh, quintessential cosmopolitan kind of thing. Uh, but when he was in Jerusalem, when he was in Judea, he was the Jew's Jew, you know, he was trying to emulate that king thing to garner support. So in an effort to do that, he would squash everything, both for Rome and when it worked to help his uh, reputation with the Jews. And that included sects and other teachings that would go against the cultural status quo, against the religious status quo. And of course, if you've been tracking with us at all, you know where we are in the story, you know that that means the gospel is going to be a prime target at some point, right? And now is when that happens, okay? The followers of the way made it onto Herod Agrippa's radar, and he moves against them in a typically violent fashion. Verses 1 and 2, you know, talk about numerous members of the church. We have no idea how many are violently apprehended. We don't know what their fate was or what was done to them. They just know he was not kind about it. It wasn't, would you please come with me, sir? No, it was dragging people or whatever, kind of like what Paul was doing probably. Um, Saul, before he became Paul, so to speak. Um, and then he kills James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, right? They, like, they've got, a, like, a nickname, you know? Like, the first apostle to die, King Agrippa. He's the one, all right? And, and he was killed by the sword, possibly because that's what the law prescribes for heretics in, in Deuteronomy 13. And it even may have been that he was beheaded with the sword because of the rules the Sanhedrin was using at the time. Um, whatever favor the church had had once upon a time, you know, they were, everything was really actually great for them, 
was clearly gone because the population responded positively to this apostle's death, right? And that was all Herod needed to see, right? I will definitely take more of that positive reinforcement, that appreciation. Yes, please, let's see. Um, I'll arrest Peter. We're going to keep doing this. We'll just keep picking them off. They've got a lot of people to choose from. So he arrests Peter during Passover. That's the Days of Unleavened Bread. And he's intending to put him on display for the people in some kind of show trial, something to make even more of it, you know, to garner more support, to garner, to draw them to him some more um, before executing him. And... He was committed. You could see he was committed to keeping Peter safe for his intentions because he put four squads on him. And so you know, that four squads, it, most likely, there's, I wouldn't say this is a guarantee, but it's most likely four squads of four, based on what I read, uh, and they would rotate their, like, their coverage of him in, or their duty, you know, watching him every three hours or so. So it wasn't necessarily like he was surrounded by 16 people all the time, but... Something more like that, something a little more reasonable sounding. Um, and this is actually borne out by Peter's rescue a little bit later in the story. But I would call that still a strong theory. So this is a pretty grim picture, right? I mean, you have a violent tyrant planning to garner more favor with his subjects by killing his second apostle, who is locked up securely. It looks pretty done, right? It's, it's pretty set. This is, this is over for him. Tomorrow's the big day, but there's one glimmer of hope, glimmer of hope, and that is the church is praying for Peter. Okay, so let's move on to scene two, the rescue, 6 through 17. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what, the, what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And then they went out, I'm sorry, when they went out into this, along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel, rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from that all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was all, whose other name was Mark. Where, there, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said to them, how, I'm sorry, how the Lord brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the, and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. <clears throat> so Peter's asleep in prison. He's chained with a guard on each side, right? There's a wrist, a shackle probably, you know. He's, he's chained like that. And... It, it definitely looks bleak. Suddenly, there's an angel waking him up. The chains fall off. I, he, it says, he, the King James actually says he smote him on the side. You know, it's not just like a, hey, Peter. You know, there was like a, hey, wake up. Come on, we got to go kind of thing. Uh, so it was more than just a little tap. It was probably at least a good little whack. Uh, and, and getting him dressed and leading him out of the prison. And, and all the while, Peter's kind of like, wow, this is amazing to see. You know, he's not even realizing it's really happening. Now, notice there were two guards he was chained to, and then there were two more as they passed out the gate, according to the way this is written, right? So it's, it could bear out the theory of being four squads of four um, that rotated their duty. So the outer gate opens all by itself, which honestly would have been awesome to see. And after Peter and the angel go about a block, the angel vanishes. And that's when Peter comes to his senses, when he's standing there, middle of the street, Kind of quiet, it's dark. 
this is real, you know, like this kind of, can you imagine that kind of coming to your senses and be like, whoa, you know. So he, he comes to his senses and realizes, I, I got to find everybody. So he goes to where he thinks people will be. John Mark's mom's house, of course. So he goes and he's right and that's where they're praying. All right. And next we get a little bit of comic relief uh, from Rhoda, the servant girl, who I've always read this is, and I think it has to be so sweet that in her joy that Peter's really here, she forgets to let him in and goes and wants to tell everybody else. She wants to share the news. She wants to evangelize that Peter is at the door. Um, and she runs and tells the others, and they thoroughly don't believe her. Thoroughly don't believe her. They even seem to tease or mock her a little bit, calling her crazy, right? You're out of your mind. And she keeps at it, and they say, it's his angel over and over again, which has always puzzled me. And so I, I can't glaze over that in the sermon, so we're going to just take a second for that. First, you've got to remember that these people are thoroughly doubting Rhoda's story, Right? And they were dismissing her with these statements, okay? That's what they're saying. They're not making uh, theological uh, statements and, and anything to hang a framework on for, to, for coming up with guardian angels or explaining guardian angels or something like that. that is, this, this passage is where that's largely built off of. But that's not what's going on here. They're, they're, they're dismissing her with these things and, and could even be joking with her, um, so it would be wrong to develop anything like, like a doctrine about something about angels from this, okay? Um, that's, that's, that's a whole other conversation when you get into developing doctrines off of obscure passages. But anyway, um, and I appreciated the insight I found in the Zondervan exegetical commentary on Acts where it indicated that this concept could really be something similar to the disciples' reaction when Jesus was walking on the water and they think he's a ghost, you know, it's like a, whoa, it's a, what is that? You know, that, that kind of like, we're going to explain this somehow. So the comment, if it wasn't intended as teasing Rhoda, is probably some kind of uh, way of trying to explain what they don't understand. You know, well, I, I don't know what that is. Maybe it's his angel, maybe it's his ghost or something like that, but it's, it's not Peter. There's no way Peter's going to be at the door. That's where this is coming from, okay? As far as saying it must be his angel. Um, and it's important to now point out here that they were praying for Peter, but it's possible they weren't thinking to pray for his miraculous last-minute release, okay? Uh, we can't be sure. We tend to assume they would be. It's very reasonable that they might be, but whether they were or not, whatever reason, we know that they were amazed when they saw him at the door, shocked. And so whether they started like, how are you here? Did you see this? Did you, somebody touch him, see if he's real. You know, and, you know, or if they were really jabbering like that and starting to cause a commotion, or if they were about to, Peter silences them. He either gets them quiet or keeps them quiet before they, they make a ruckus and draw attention and explains what happened and takes off to another land, another place, somewhere. We don't know where. There are actually a lot of theories as to where, and some are more convincing than others, but we don't know. Scripture doesn't say, and this is our authority, right? So... Uh, so he goes somewhere where he can be safe and effective. And right now, that's not Jerusalem. All right. Scene three, the aftermath, verses 18 through 23. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be executed. I'm sorry, ex ordered that they should be put to death. I can write my own version. Uh, then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain or personal assistant, uh, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. All right. Aftermath indeed. Um, I honestly can't imagine the amount of bewilderment and terror there would have been for those soldiers when they realized, ah, oh, Peter's gone. Now what? You know, when they were scrambling yeah, it would have been awful. Certainly no little disturbance, right, when they were trying to figure out what happened and, and what to tell Herod. You know, the, the standard treatment for Roman soldiers 
who allowed a prisoner to escape was for them to receive the penalty that the prisoner was supposed to receive. And they all knew it. They knew their lives were on the line if they couldn't find Peter like Herod asked, like he ordered. Um, And whether it was the four that were on duty at the time, if that's how it went, or if it was all four squads, they were executed. And while it's not quite clear from the text, several commentators actually affirm what you can kind of read into it, that Herod may have left Judea for Caesarea out of uh, frustration and even humiliation from Peter's escape. Because it was, you know, he was making a big deal out of this and he was let down. Um, and the scene ends in Caesarea now with Herod's death, which also is documented pretty well by Josephus. And so we're actually going to hear a little bit from him too now. The two accounts, Luke's and Josephus's, are parallel and not contradictory. And also, like many biblical histories, uh, they, there are details in Luke's account that aren't in Josephus's and vice versa. Uh, which doesn't actually make anything a contradiction. They actually are more corroborating that way when you think of like cold case uh, investigations and things like that. It's it's actually pretty neat. There's a whole thing out there I I can't get into now for time, but their corroborating stories actually lend even more credence to what Scripture says here. It's pretty cool. But let's go into that a little bit. Josephus is, I'm going to mess his name up six times in the next 10 minutes. Uh, Josephus is, Example, for example, uh, doesn't include anything about Agrippa being angry with Tyre and Sidon. There's no mention in his account of that interaction at all. But that doesn't mean Luke was wrong. The diplomatic exchange that they had could completely happen in, inside the, the events that are described by Josephus, a small part of it even. Um, meanwhile, Josephus' account includes that Agrippa was celebrating spectacles, whatever those exactly are. It was in a theater, so it could have been plays, it could have been stupid human tricks, I don't know. But it was, it was in a theater, and it was understood to be celebrating spectacles, according to Josephus, and it was to honor Caesar. So whatever this multi-day event was, Josephus uh, says that Agrippa, and I'm going to quote Josephus now, showed up in a garment woven completely of silver. He entered the theater. That's why I went royal robes, not just to be silly, but like when you tie these two together, you can just imagine it, right? So he showed up in a garment woven completely of silver. He entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver, illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. Josephus is a good writer. But um, you can just kind of imagine the spectacle of him presenting himself. And in there, he could have made an oration. There's all sorts of, you know, there's not like a minute-by-minute account here. And Josephus also records that this, that, that this was what led the crowds, or part of what led the crowds at least, to hailing him as a god. And this event reasonably happened the same, is the same event as Luke, just with different insights. Uh, he very well could have addressed the crowd, like I said. And interestingly enough, Josephus recognized that Herod received the praise. Not only that, but Josephus also says that he doesn't rebuke the crowd for it, and then he sees an owl as a harbinger of doom, and instantly felt a stab of pain in his heart, and was gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once, and that was intense from the start. He hadn't been sick, and suddenly it got worse. It was nothing. It was zero to a hundred like that, right? And then in Josephus' account, Agrippa then acknowledges his sin to the crowd and acknowledges that he's dying for it. And the account ends by saying Agrippa suffered his abdominal pain, this intense pain, for five days before he died. And that actually works just fine with Luke's account. It's just, Luke's is just more concise. And notice that Luke says, he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I've always read that as he killed over and died. You know, like it says... Where is it? Um, uh, immediately, the angel of the Lord struck him down. We tend to think struck him down means, oh, he's dead. You know, like with a sword. Jaw, now you're down, right? But it makes complete sense that he would have immediately struck him to death, but he didn't die right away, okay? And it's very interesting that it says he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I've always imagined this instantaneous thing, and when I read this worms part, I think, okay, so he died and then was eaten by worms because... We all are, right? But that's not what it says. It says he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. 
which means he had some sort of instant painful something that involved worms eating him and then he died, which is reasonably maybe going to take a few days, you know? Um, So, and, and in case you're wondering, an infection of intestinal roundworms would play out just like Josephus's and Luke's report, okay? I will spare you the gory details, but I will tell you, I, I read it, and, and it would be interesting to some and horrific to others. So I'm just going to spare you the details, but I will suffice it to say that it would have been obvious that Herod was eaten by worms to the people that were around him as he was dying. I'll leave it at that. Um, so it's a good chance that that's what the Lord smote him with at the time, and it took a little while for that to all play out. So, now the epilogue, verses 24 to 25. Now when day came, I'm sorry, wrong part, verses 24 and 25, but the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from, their, from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So in the face of all this, maybe even uh, particularly after these events, even because of, in some ways, these events, the word continued to increase and multiply. The gospel continued to go forth, and the church continued to grow in number and spiritual depth and strength. And Luke seems to use this phrase several times through Acts to uh, kind of signal the dividing of content. Pardon me, pretty much like a, the closest we'd get to an actual biblical author making chapter divisions, if you will. Um, and sure enough, chapter 13 shifts to the missionary uh, activity coming out of Antioch and Syria. But chapter 12 ends by acknowledging that Paul and Barnabas went back to Antioch once they delivered the financial assistance they were sent to give. And this is not connected to anything else we've read in this chapter. Um, but it does lead us to what's going to be happening in Antioch after this, as well as serving as an indicator that we're returning to that chronology. You know, so if this was, this would be the end of the meanwhile in Antioch, in, meanwhile in Jerusalem kind of section. This is like some movies will, will, will have wipes to change scenes, you know. The Star Wars is kind of really known for that. So it'll be they're on this one place and then there's this wipe and now we're in another place. And then they'll do another wipe and we're back in the first place. Well, this is the wipe back to Antioch, okay. So hopefully you're tracking with the story now. It should be pretty thoroughly understood Let's look at a couple implications and applications that I think the Lord wants us to consider. And first, let's consider the scenario of the, of the church praying for Peter and then being shocked that he showed up at the door. Um, and as we do that, let's recognize that we need to pray earnestly, persistently, and expectantly. We need to pray earnestly, persistently, and expectantly. Now, we read in verse 5 that the believers were praying earnestly, which conveys that they were praying uh, with sincerity, with intense conviction. They were seriously praying. They weren't just like, oh, and God, thank you for this day, and please help Peter. You know, they they were in it, and they were doing it, and it was like into the night, and they were still doing it. They were scarring the knees, you know. Uh, They were were in for it. Um, And as the story unfolds, as we read it from posterity, it's tempting to be kind of critical of them, isn't it? That they were surprised to see Peter. Um, I mean, how many of us at some point have thought or even said, weren't you just praying for that? Come on, ye of little faith. You know, that, have you ever had that thought? I have. I've totally had that thought. In fact, I had it before I studied the passage more <laughs> this week. Um, but to be fair, we should be able to identify with them pretty easily. I mean, how often do we evaluate everything that's going on and and, and everything we understand through our lens of circumstance? Pretty much all the time, unless we get fixed about it, get corrected about it. So let's consider theirs. Things had changed a lot since Acts 2, that time of, of, of life, and there had been sweeping persecution. James has been killed. Peter was securely locked up under serious guard and headed for the exact same fate. Things were pretty grim. Pretty decided, like I said earlier. Why would he suddenly be at the door? Why would we consider that? And were they even praying for his immediate release, for his miraculous release? We tend to assume so, but we honestly don't know. They may have been praying for for him to sleep well, for him to have peace as he faces this, to to go off like Stephen did, maybe to, to have the Spirit's power to answer those who are questioning him, to witness to the other prisoners or his own guards in prison. We, we don't know. Uh, maybe this was the time 
that the church learned that God can do more than we will ask or imagine or think, like, like Paul says in Ephesians 3.20. So there's a check in here for us. How much are we trusting the one we're praying to? How sovereign and powerful do we really think he is? And how do we evaluate that based on how things are going for us? How often are we shocked when he answers prayer? Do we, do we pray expectantly in faith while trusting his will? Or more fatalistically, not really expecting anything out of the natural, ordinary way of things to happen? Please, Lord, just help us get through this. You know? And honestly, please, Lord, help us get through this is a great thing to pray. But um, do we pray with hopeful faith? knowing what God can do, and asking him for that, and then trusting that what he does actually do is what he deems best, and being okay with that. We need to be alert to our attitude in prayer and how it intersects with our faith and what we say we believe. We need to pray expectantly. Colossians 4.2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, the, the continue steadfastly is pretty straightforward, right? We're going to keep at it. We're not going to give up. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. And with thanksgiving, so we're going to be going into this thanking God that we can even ask him anything. And we're going to thank him for the things he's done. We're going to thank him for what he's going to do even before he does it. Okay, we, we can get that. But this, this part in the middle, being watchful, is kind of interesting. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says, Watchful prayer enables disciples to see what God is doing and to discern what sinister forces might be seeking to undo. So if we're alert, if we're watchful in prayer, we're more likely to see what God is doing through it so we can pray with more confidence. It will build our trust in him and we'll understand what he's up to better and better instead of expecting that he will or won't do what we ask. Prayer should not be passive either. It should be full of faith, though sometimes admittedly that's hard. I'm going to acknowledge that and we'll acknowledge that more in a minute. And we should be persistent, like, Jesus, like I said a second ago, like Jesus taught in Luke 11 and Matthew 21. Like we've, many of us at least have heard those, those parables before of the, of the persistent widow who's going for justice from this unjust judge, and she keeps coming until she gets it. And, and the, the man the, whose, whose friends showed up in the middle of the night, and he didn't have food to treat them well and, and, and feed them like their customs expect. And so he went to his neighbor's house to get something to borrow to feed them. And he was in bed, and he didn't want to come out, but he, he persisted until the guy came out and gave him something. Both of those stories Jesus told to say we need to keep at it in faith, being persistent in faith and not give up. So we need to be persistent in faith. And we need not make our prayers manageable for God. Like, he's so busy, we don't want anything too big, we'll, we'll just make small requests, we'll take care of the rest of it ourselves, or we'll muddle through, or whatever, you know. And, and we don't need to give him an out. We don't need to pray for every possibility so that once something happens, look, he had answered our prayer. You know, or, or it's okay if you don't, God, but you know, whatever. We, we don't need to give him an out like that. Do you ever catch yourself doing that? I totally did. I think I spent about seven years doing that, you know, not all that long ago. Um... Instead, we need to ask specifically and trust that he has a better handle on what we need and how to answer it than we do when we ask. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't ask as best you know how. It means you ask specifically. You ask the best you know how and then trust him for his answers, that he knows best when he answers. So we need to pray earnestly, persistently, and expectantly. Now let's consider the whole story again. We're not going to go through the story again. We're going to consider the whole story from the perspective of someone who would have been living through it in order to deal with some of our own real faith struggles. So let's take someone we know. Pardon me. How about the Apostle John? We all know him, right? Yeah, we're all buddies. Uh, So the Apostle John, he knows Jesus. He loves Jesus. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loves, so he knows Jesus loves him. He was well acquainted with the power of the Holy Spirit, working in him, through him, around him, to do miraculous things that he couldn't explain other than through the Spirit, through God's power. How might he have felt during the, act, the, the events of Acts 12? Let's think through it as a possibility here. Things have been going so well, but since Stephen's death, this wave of persecution hit, 
and life has been a lot harder. Now Herod Agrippa is getting on the action by violently apprehending more believers and killing his brother, James. Where was God in that? He rescues others. Why didn't he rescue James? And then Peter. Great, now another one. Peter is, is, is arrested and then is supernaturally rescued from certain death. Why Peter and not James? Does God just like Peter more? John, James, and Peter were Jesus' inner circle. Why Peter and not James? Is, it, is, is Jesus just playing favorites now? Either that he likes Peter more or he wanted James Holmeson or whatever. What is going on? And then Herod Agrippa dies in Caesarea. Now Herod is stopped. Now Herod is stopped, not even permanently, but miraculously, like somewhere between a few months and a year-ish, 11 months after James died. Now he's stopped. Couldn't that have come a little sooner, God? It could have spared so much suffering and the life of James and these guards that were guarding Peter. And Agrippa was an evil man to begin with. Why did he ever have power at all? God, why are you doing all this stuff wrong? Why is this so awful? I thought you loved me. Now, I'm obviously fabricating an imaginary response from John in this. We have no idea where he even was or how he handled any of this stuff that happened, but obviously it would have hit him hard that his brother was executed. But I guarantee some felt something like this. Why? Because they're just like us. They wrestle with the same things we wrestled with. We do wrestle with. And, and you know, how often are we really quick to be sent reeling by things that go bad, by things that are hard. It's understandable. But we're quick to, you know, doubt and fear and question and quit when the pain comes. When we don't understand what God is doing at all. We can sound a lot like that imaginary description in the middle of our distress. And it, like I said, it's very understandable. Hard stuff is hard. It is. And we shouldn't pretend it's not because we've got the spirit. It's still hard. We naturally also want God things to do stuff our way, right? We, at the very least, uh, want to be able to understand what he's doing, right? If he loves us, we should at least be able to understand it. We're human. We're prone to want God to conform to our image of him. We're, we're human. We, we're prone to want his plan and his ways to meet our expectations, And we do it all the time, even without realizing it. On the other hand, we're called to trust him, knowing our perspective is incomplete. We're called to trust him, knowing our perspective is incomplete. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 makes it clear that God's ways and God's thoughts are hilariously, unimaginably beyond ours. It says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And Psalm 23 is an illustration of this kind of trust we're called to have, and that we can have. I'm just going to pull verse 4 out. And in the NLT it says, Even when I walk through the valley, the dark valley of death. The valley of the shadow of death is how we all know it. But I think it's interesting, the dark valley of death just gives it a little more of an edge. I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Facing darkness and struggle and sorrow and death, we can trust that he's with us in it. He is our comfort. Not our circumstances getting better or the hope of our circumstances getting better. He is our comfort and our hope in it, in the middle of it. And when you suffer or struggle, I want to ask, is your hope in the Lord who's in it with you or in the prospects of the circumstances changing? And First Kings 19 shows the prophet Elijah struggling in just this way. 
or in a very similar way at least. Uh, His life was threatened, and he was in despair, believing he was the only one who had not surrendered to the false god, Baal. And it turns out, God tells him, that all the while, God has 7,000 others who have also not surrendered and given their heart to Baal. They are still true to the Lord. Now, if you don't know who Elijah is, this is kind of a big deal, okay? Elijah was a powerful prophet of the Lord, a bold prophet of the Lord. He, this situation came just after doing this whole thing and asking God to consume this, this sacrifice, and he did it by sending fire from heaven to do it. And then after that victory over the prophets of Baal, he, he is, is threatened and runs off because he is in despair. But he is somebody who knows the Lord well, who has done mighty things, who knows a lot. And he had no idea what God was doing over here with 7,000 other people. He was in God's counsel, but he didn't know everything. His perspective was incomplete. We need to turn our eyes on him when sea billows roll. We, when we can't see the horizon, when all seems lost, he's still there and he can still be our comfort. We're called to trust him knowing our perspective is incomplete. Now verse 24 and 25, being included at the end of the story, serves a purpose more than just a pseudo-chapter division, Right? Uh, even when things are hard, even when it involves tragedy and loss, with an eternal perspective, we can trust that God's plan continues and the gospel still spreads. Even through suffering and tragedy, God's plan continues and the gospel still spreads. And I bring this up, (coughs) pardon me, and I bring this up to ask, is this really our hope and comfort? This could and should comfort us a lot, that even when we don't see what's going on, which is the hardest thing, and we'll get there again in a second, we can know that God's plan is still going forth, that the gospel is still spreading. And if this isn't a comfort to you, then there may be some other priority in your heart and mind that's out of order, some idol in your heart that's above the Lord and his purposes for saving you, his purposes for any of this. Do you want what he wants and love what he loves? Do you reject what he rejects? Or do you operate off your own list of priorities? And this is a very natural thing to happen too. It's very easy. I'm not saying this in a condemning way. I'm saying this in a we got to keep track of this way because it's very easy to fall into this, slip into this day after day, every other day, whatever. The hardest part of any of this though, I think, is when we can't see how he's using our tragedy and struggle. And, and the worst part in that, I think, is that sometimes we never get to see it. But even then, we can trust that God is still at work, even though we can't see it because of our limited perspective, right? And kind of, again, like Elijah in his despair. So when you find yourself there, or when you find brothers and sisters in Christ struggling, what do you do? Well, for yourself, and these also could work into things you might bring others along in, you can pour out your heart to God, okay? Turn to him, run to him, and admit your pain, your fear, your anger, your confusion, etc. He knows already, of course, but it does you a lot of good to run to him with it in a whole lot of ways. He knows if you're mad at him for it. He knows if you blame him. He knows if you're doubting him because of it. Tell him. Exercise that kind of faith and say, God, this is awful. God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why James had to die. I I don't know if you're really there right now, but I'm coming to you hoping that you are, trusting that you are. And I hurt, and, and I need your help. And you might have to do that for a long time before you sense anything. But run to him. Take your pain to him. And another thing you could do is turn to praise, even if it's a sacrifice of praise. Okay, and if, and if you can't bring yourself to actually make the words, whether it's singing or just speaking praise, 
surround yourself with praise, whether it's turning on worship music that is directly, not just anything that's nice, but things that are really you know, praising the Lord and extolling his virtues and his trustworthiness and his glory. And that would even mean like, be here. Join us. Even if you have to stand there, even if you have to sit in silence and bow, surround yourself with praise. And this is probably the hardest suggestion. But you also really should invite people into this hard part of your story. Resist the urge to isolate yourself in it. So you know isolation is a tactic to the enemy. Okay? And if you're, if you're embracing that isolation because you just can't do people, you're, you're, you just can't form words, you can't be around anybody, you're just going to hide in the corner because that's the most comfort you can find, you're being played. You're being worked on, and your isolation is working against you and for the enemy. Um, so invite people into that story, which is going to be hard. It could be embarrassing. You could feel shame until you get it out and realize there is no shame in pain. And all the while, seeking to trust, seeking to re- remember that he is good and he loves you, and it's okay that you don't understand or see it in the moment. Now, for others... If, it, if that's not you, but you find people, you know people in anything of this kind of struggle, I want to invite you to mourn with them, to lament whatever's going on with them. Do not deny what they're experiencing or, or just pat them on the back and say it'll be okay and leave it at that. Join them in it. Weep with those who weep, right? Do not give them Bible verses or quippy sayings that should make them feel better and get you off the relational hook. Do not try and solve everything immediately with your logistical prowess. Just, just love them and be there with them. Join them. And as they experience your care and your presence, you will be able to then see opportunities to speak the truth and point them to the Lord, to search for areas of unbelief and remind them of the hope that they need but, and even want but maybe can't see right now. And that could take a matter of minutes as you enter into their pain. It could take hours. It could take days, weeks, or longer. You need to be patient and not be on your agenda, but on God's, right? And just be aware, on the flip side, if you will, of indulging someone who wants to wrap their heart around the pain and not look back, okay? The point is to, to be caring and sensitive in each situation and not trite or dismissive, and conversely, not indulgent or enabling of the pain becoming an idol. This is another reason why we've identified one of our values as a church to be a redemptive community. We want to be transformed by the redemptive power of the gospel as a transparent, which is hard, but as a transparent and gracious community doing life together, even the messy, difficult, embarrassing stuff Helping one another trust when it's hard and bearing one another's burdens like we're called to. Again, even, though, even through suffering and tragedy, God's plan continues and the gospel still spreads. And the only way we can have this kind of trust in someone we can't see, especially when things are hard, is if we've truly come to know him personally. If we've truly been born again, made a new creation by him, And the only way that's possible is through the gospel. And we can know that he's for us. We can know that he's wanting to care for us, not just because it says so in all these different places in Scripture, but because Jesus came to do it. He didn't just say it from a distance. He showed up and entered our human story to bear our sin in our place and endure the wrath of God we deserve. We, can you get that? Endure God's wrath that he didn't deserve. And we all did. Putting your faith in that sacrifice. And then he, I don't want to leave out. And then three days later, rising from the dead. To prove he did it and he is who he said he was and it's done. Okay? Don't want to leave that out. That's, that's kind of important. But responding to that in faith. Trusting that that sacrifice was for you, repenting of your way and going his, that's when you are made a new creation. That's when you can have this kind of hope. Not that it's suddenly easy to deal with all sorts of strife because you're a Christian, 
But now you actually can. Sometimes it's a long struggle still. Sometimes there's lots of up and downs. But now you actually can face it with his power and his strength because he's yours. Because you're his and he's yours. That works too. So I've got some reflection questions to help you guys consider how to personally handle these things and, and how you can grow in them and how you can help others persevere in faith. And so you know, I added one that'll be on the screen and I'll read, but it's not. If you got the weekly word in prayer, I added it this morning. That was a little late, uh, but it seemed necessary. So here are those reflection questions. <coughs> Pardon me. To whom or what do you turn when life and what God is doing doesn't make sense to you? Is your hope and trust in God based on how he benefits you or on his character and power? And I'll throw this one in for free. It's not anywhere. Is your trust in him conditional based on whether or not he does what you hope for and when you you think it should happen? They kind of go hand in hand. And how have you trusted him when things seem bleak in the past? It's good to remember those things. Return to those things. Are you aware of anyone that is suffering in these ways, anywhere on the spectrum of suffering and and mourning and struggle, whom you could care for, whose story you could enter into? And finally, how can you sensitively help brothers and sisters in Christ trust him when they're suffering like this without being trite or dismissive? Consider that for a few seconds and I'll, I'll pray for us. Lord, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. And like I prayed at the beginning, I thank you that you are good, even when we can't see it. And I thank you for your patience with us and your your love for us that's shown in your patience when we go even long spans of time not being able to see it, questioning it, wondering it. Thank you that you're bigger than all of our questions and doubts and struggles. Lord, please help us to be the kind of, of, of groups, kind of community, kind of family that's really okay enduring the painful awkwardness of entering into each other's stories, of welcoming people into our own. Please help us adjust our, our and I'm saying this for myself absolutely as well, adjust our expectations for how our time should be used and how much personal space we need and how much awkwardness we should be saved from to really be able to love each other well. And I thank you that you are on the throne, that you are dressed in glory way better than some goofy robe of silver. And that even if we struggle for years, it doesn't change who you are. I thank you by your spirit You can bring us through and help us see that again. Please use us in each other's lives. Please help us to trust you more. Please help us to rejoice in what you have done and what you're doing. And we will praise you even in the midst of it. Please help us trust you even in the midst of it. In Jesus' name, amen.